Today, our guest is Jeff Denby, the co-founder of Pact, which makes super soft organic cotton underwear, socks, and tees. He's actually left Pact, though, and is starting a new endeavor, which we'll get into a little bit. We'll also dive into the Linda problem and a number of other juicy topics. Jeff, welcome. Um, for those of that don't know you, um, I think most know you from Pact. Do you want to give us a quick, a quick kind of uh, pitch on Pact? Sure. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me today. This is uh, going to be a super engaging conversation. Um, so, yeah, I'm Jeff Denby. I um, was one of the co-founders of Pact Apparel, and um, we created a basics brand that uh, was all about changing the way apparel was made uh, from the ground up. So trying to um, alter how clothes are manufactured by um, developing a transparent supply chain and working deeply with farmers um, and then hand building that supply chain um, all the way to the final finished product um, being transparent all the way along um, knowing that the greatest social impact we could have as a brand was to um, support and um, help the people within um, our own supply chain, the people that make our products every single day. So we created products, we created a brand around that, and um, we grew it to a national brand and um, sold nationwide at Whole Foods and Nordstrom, Amazon, Zappos, and our own website. And um, I recently left uh, earlier this year to take on new adventures. Yeah, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. Um... I think one of the really interesting things that I, as I was looking back on, on Pact and digging in there deep is how early you guys got into the whole underwear and socks. I don't know. I'm, I kind of want to call it a movement that's going on right now. And just the explosion of just even stock brands. It's wild. Like, what did you guys clue into at that time that I think everyone's now, now clued into? Uh, socks are easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. Yeah, you know what's really, it's really interesting that like there was this alignment of particularly in um, men's fashion of um, really fun, brightly colored socks. It's like men don't get a lot of choice um, and, and a lot of options when it comes to fashion, but woo, you can really show your kooky side by wearing some brightly colored striped socks. Um, and that just seemed to really kind of, as a trend, take hold. Um, kind of right before us was Happy Socks, which kind of took over by storm with the, the brightly colored socks. And then we followed, and now there's just been a, a huge amount of them. And to be honest, it is, I do think that one of the reasons why there's been a proliferation of so many brands is because it's actually not a very difficult product to design and manufacture. Um, and the actual um, manufacturing is pretty cheap, and so margins are um, are pretty good. Developing and manufacturing clothing is really hard. Um, you know, in socks, there's one size. In clothing, you've got all these different sizes you've got to get right. Um, the fit is really complicated. Socks are it's pretty easy to fit a sock on a uh, <laughs> on a foot. Um, <laughs> It's just pretty, and, and the design and the development of them is, is pretty easy. So I think that's why people have kind of jumped in uh, on this. And at PACT, we started with underwear. Um, 
and and we always wanted to add socks be, uh, because the the point of the of the brand was to to do basics. Um, but one thing that we found really early on was, um, you know, we could get customers interested in the product and to buy the product, but it's really hard to wear underwear as a, a badge because no one sees it when uh, you're wearing it. So adding socks into the mix quickly was really helpful because at least people could see it and there would be a conversation piece and at least there would be the ability for consumers to wear the brand on the outside. How long did did you guys go in thinking that or was something you discovered like, hey, we're making underwear and nobody knows because nobody's showing off their underwear? Is it like, or did you go in there thinking, we're going to make this underwear that does good in the world, and then we're going to do socks, and then we're going to do apparel, and then we're going to... Yeah, it was always intended to be a a lifestyle basics brand. I think we added socks a lot earlier than we had expected to, because we were like, yeah, shoot, we got to get some clothing on people that they can actually see. Um, But then it was interesting because, you know, in the basics business, it's like, how much do you brand your basics? Um, people don't really want all these brands and logos and stuff on basic clothing. Um, so it, it became a challenge to, and a, and a balance of like branding our clothes so people could wear them on the outside and, and keeping it basic so that we, we could be the, um, we could fill people's drawers with t-shirts and leggings and socks and, um, uh, all the stuff that people have multiples of in their drawer because they are unbranded. Yeah. I think that's one reason what was so interesting for me about American Apparel when in the early days is that they were, they've always been completely unbranded, yet you can actually kind of spot their product on the street. Um, right. And I don't know whether it was like a color thing or a style thing or what it was, but um, they, I think in the early days they really captured that magic of, of identifying unbranded product. So Jeff, I have a question. You, you know, that, that very first impression, the, the kooky sock or the, the stylistic thing. So once people were attracted to that, then what happened, what happened after that? How did you keep them in the fray? How did you keep them coming back and buying things? What was the progression of their cluing into what you guys were up to and, I mean, it's on the website, all that stuff is really plastered all over the place. It's really aggressively stated about the cause and, and the purpose of the company. And, and I'm wondering, you know, was it style uh, purely? And then that was the added, like the icing on the cake? Or was it, was it more the ethos of the company? And then they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to support this company because they're doing the right thing. What came first? And, and then what happens after that first thing? Yeah, I think when we first launched, it... it definitely people were drawn to the company because of who we are and the brand that we we created and, and what it stood for, the connection to causes. It was a um, novel idea. Really, Tom's was still early um, when we came out. And so they were sort of the first one to sort of connect product to cause. And then we did it in this unique category of underwear and and, and in it with a quirky kind of brand attached to it. And the early customers were drawn in because of that unique proposition. They 
certainly weren't like, oh, thank God someone invented underwear. Um, it was, there was lots of options for underwear uh, and socks and all the other basics, but this was the, this was organic and it was giving to causes. And so people were pulled in. Um, I think that the brand promise really was at the very beginning, like I said, what people um, bought into, but if our products didn't work for them, they certainly wouldn't have come back. So then, you know, comfort, quality, and price were sort of those next um, decision-making uh, pieces that made people decide whether or not investing in this brand and being associated with it was actually worth it. If we made horribly uncomfortable underwear and it was really expensive and even though it gave to a cause, we're not going to get people to come back. Um, and so I, I had a hard, as, as we started to grow and get customers from different, um, areas and different entering the brand from different, different places, I think that I just had a hard time believing that customers made decisions, um, in a linear fashion. Right. it really, I don't think customers evaluate things like, oh, is this comfortable underwear? Okay, is this underwear quality? Now is it the right price? Uh, oh, and they do good? Okay, now I'm in. It's, I think it's much more of a web and, and you're constantly like evaluating everything all at the, the same time, which really in the end is why brand becomes the most important and most valuable thing that a company can have. That's a, a that's a pretty pretty interesting jumping off point to the conversation we were having before we before we started chatting here today uh, about Kahneman and Tursky's work and uh, the book uh, Thinking Fast and Slow about intuitive decision making. That it is a very very messy process of um, kind of discerning what it is that attracts an individual to a brand and you know that it's entirely not linear and in a lot of ways it's really really not very logical or rational um, so I think it's interesting that you you comment on that yeah I think uh, it's you know when I say you what could would people still buy packed if we said oh hey everybody it's not organic anymore like you love, but but you still it's still the same fit. It's still the same quality. It's still the same price, but it's just not organic. Does are people going to come like if they're making those decisions in a linear fashion? Then maybe that's okay. But because they're not making those decisions in a linear fashion, they're like, wait, no, you just broke, you broke everything about what I believed in here. Mm -hmm. So the so quality and comfort and price are, are irrelevant to this conversation because those things only mattered to me because I believed in the other thing too, which right. really makes it this decision web as opposed to this like, it's funny, I always sit in these, we've forever sat in these conversations debating what our most important feature was to the customer and trying to figure out how the customer bring, comes into the brand and what's important to them. What should be the number one thing we say on the front of the package? Mm -hmm. You know, what's that thing? It's got to be about fit. It's got to be best quality. Uh, <laughs> no, we need to. <laughs> well, it's interesting because that's the website is a mashup of information. Right. And 
and yeah, I think that's uh, it, you're, this that the homepage is actually one of the most over. Here's here it all is uh, in a stir fry, and you know you go figure it out if you're attracted to it or not. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that it's a great thing. <laughs> um, I think it was the one. I think that was a big piece of what we struggled um, to try to figure out was in this very crowded marketplace um, that, frankly, people shop as a commodity. Um, how do you get noticed? How do you convince people to purchase your product? And I think it goes, what I learned coming out of um, the development and growth of PACT was really this idea of your core customer and identifying who your core customer is. And, and really, that was something that I don't think we fully understood and took the time to develop a clear understanding of. And that's why I think you see the stir fry, because it's still being figured out. Mm. Um, so I think that, um, and it's interesting to, I see a lot of startups especially have this problem where where it's you're chasing revenue in the early day and not necessarily you don't have, you don't necessarily have the patience to figure out who your core customer is because you're trying to get sales and so then you fall into our favorite situation Craig which is the Linda problem <laughs> <laughs> and early brands Startup brands believe that their core customer is the one that is spending the most money with them. And that's not actually true, um, especially in the days, because it could just be that your core, you just don't know who your core customer is yet. And it's don't get, don't get distracted by the one that's handing you the most amount of money. Yeah. I also uh, tend to see in in that circumstance that we want to make sure because we are are really at the outset here we will take any customer right. and so what we want to do is appeal to every customer and so let's put let's put our let's just say we're the best at everything and that we believe in everything also so um, we want to attract everybody and there's that I don't know if it's a lack of confidence or a lack of discipline, but it's a lack of, of one of those things that creates a, uh, you know, the difference I think in a lot of really solid startup environments is a confidence that you're doing something that, that fills some desire, I think, within the founders. Like if I'm building a company because I think this is the right thing to do, and then just being really steadfast to that thing, and you know what? If there's an audience out there that is attracted to that, then great. If there's not, you'll find out soon enough. Um, but instead, it becomes well, you know, let's let's dilute that and let's go after this over here and let's go over, over here for this and over there for that. And we'll eventually build an audience by, you know, discovering who is attracted to us, and then that will become our core customer. I think that's incredibly true of aspirational products because it's, it's just really challenging. You're, you're, you know, like fashion is aspiration. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that 
it's it's hard to it, people do that all the time they're like yeah whoever decides that they want to buy this product is going to be our core customer um because sometimes it's really hard to get the person who you think is your core customer when you're designing for them to actually buy the product. Right. Um, and I think a lot of brands also have this challenge of um, chasing retail. And some, and it's it, in the early days of any startup, you're incredibly opportunistic. Mm-hmm. And if, if you meet the right person at the right trade show or something, as for some retailer, it will all of a sudden you have a deal with a retailer and that's the most important thing. Well, does that retail, the question is, does that retailer attract <laughs> the customer you want or is it the fact that they're issuing you POs? So then your retailers some come, can come to define your brand for you, um, which is becomes a, also like a, exacerbates this problem because you're locked into who, who's shopping at their store. Yeah, that's really fascinating too. I have several experiences uh, dealing with that exact problem where the distribution channel actually starts to dictate what the brand identity is. And that's a that's a hard thing to avoid. Um, but you know, the eventuality of that is that it's it's not gonna build a the audience that you truly started out to want to service. And it really shifts away from that that founder perspective of I'm building this for me, and you end up starting to build things for other people. Yeah, I have a, a good example of that is actually Cloudvale, the founder of Cloudvale, um, uh, Stephen Sullivan. He was in a very traditional wholesale environment with Cloudvale, and it frustrated him to no end because he had to make products that he didn't really personally like, and he's a huge fan of really core, authentic, versatile, um, mountain lifestyle gear that you can, you know, ski in in the morning and go to work in the afternoon and the same, the same stuff. And he wanted to make really, really functional apparel across a person's lifestyle and Cloudvale really limited him. It forced him into that very high technology, top of the mountain type of presentation and because that's who was buying the product primarily through the retailers. And so when he sold Cloudvale for the final time, I think he sold it multiple times, <laughs> but when he sold it finally and restarted up a, a company of his own, he did it direct only with retail catalog and the internet. That company is called Steo. And that, you know, the product line is is much more true to, you know, his heart of hearts. And I think that's, that's, uh, it's true. You get pushed around by opportunity rather than being steadfast in what you believe in. And that's what I think that's where audiences follow more powerfully in, in those really, really deliberate point of view um, type of companies. It is interesting how many second acts end up being direct only. Yeah, so they can be true to and that. It's like the lessons learned from that. And, 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 and you're looking at that too, Jeff. Sometimes in your second act, you have more money to be patient. That's um, true too. You know, like I, it's it, going direct to the consumer is hard and expensive and challenging, um, especially in this really noisy, frothy environment that is the internet's. Um, that's tough, and if you can sell to a retailer who will put your brand in their store or even on their website, which already has an audience, 
um, and you don't have to worry about all the logistics and all this kind of stuff when you're starting up. It's so tempting. Um, so I think that's why in the first act, it really is, you know, if you're not flush with cash and you don't have the capability to be uh, focused and patient, then, and especially if you have investors being like, what, you're going to turn down that retail account? And you're like, well, not, I don't really like their customers that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, their customers have cash. Then you like them, right? So there's this whole kind of, oh, hurry up. You know, there's a, we're in this world of instant gratification, quarterly earnings, like make money now. Um, patience is a virtue that is um, in, in short supply as so, you're building a company. So you mentioned that you wanted to actually be more disciplined about understanding your core customer at the outset. Um, yes. is, is that something that you feel would have benefited you with Pact or in, in round two here with your current endeavor? Is that something that, um, that you're going to take that? luxury of time and effort to to flesh out or yeah i think we have to this is having learned this there's definitely there's opportunity but you can't allow that opportunity to define your brand um that's something that i think this time around we're just incredibly conscious of and I think the place where we um, really didn't didn't have a mature understanding of at PACT when we were starting was the customer activation cycle. And, you know, at the beginning, everyone's a prospect. And when you sell one product to them or they buy something from you one time, <clears throat> they're not customers forever. And um, we we sort of shepherded people through the house by being like, oh, thanks for buying, welcome. Okay, next person, thanks for buying, come on in. And we didn't really, once they were all in the house, we didn't really do anything to keep them there. And I think that was really the, a big learning was like, oh, well, how do we now talk to these people that are, that are standing in front of us that have been willing to make one purchase? How do we, what do they wanna know about what we do? How do we take them, how do we message to them in a way that takes them from just being like a, customer who is interested in the brand to somebody who wants to buy again and again and eventually evangelize. Um, and you, you detail this out really well in the book, Craig is, is talk, taking people through this, this customer activation cycle. And I think we spent too much time in the early days promoting to try to get people in the door and to buy rather than really understanding the people who bought what it is they wanted to hear from us so that they could, like it to enable them to become, you know, champions. Yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty common critique. I think Matt actually talks about this more than I do. But the the effort of marketing being all about the acquisition and then the retention of those customers becomes like a math problem rather than a brand problem, and if a customer is going to buy again, then you start to treat them well and start to reward them. But you don't necessarily, you know, the larger marketing world seems to forget that this is a, this is a human relationship that's actually getting established and it has to have a story arc to it. It has to have an evolution. It has to start at a simple place and get to a place that's much more 
deep and you know uh, more intimate in its understanding. And even if you're selling paper clips, there are people behind the scenes that are selling the paper clips. And so those paper clips are a manifestation of the character of those people. And that's what really is the connective tissue over time. It's kind of interesting looking at Pact and looking at the stir fry of that homepage because it's almost like you're done. Like, oh, this is everything. This is everything we're done. It's all right there. Everything we do, and it's these are all the. But but it never really gets to the motivation of the people behind the scenes of why they're doing this. Like, why is it that there's a cause attached to this? Why did you guys choose to do organic cotton? And what were the motivation behind that? Um, and what's the larger impetus behind everything. And I don't think that story necessarily is getting, getting told with, uh, with those customers. Yeah. That relates to my campaign to eliminate marketing. <laughs> um, I mean, in a very conceptual sense, but, um, you, I think the word you said in there, Craig, that's so important is relationship. And when you think about marketing and a relationship, they just, they don't, they, they don't even exist in the same, in, on the same plane in the same universe. Uh, at least to me, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to build a relationship with someone, I'm not going to start marketing to them. Like not in a not in a business sense, just in a human sense. And hey, that person seems cool. I want to hang out with them. I don't start marketing to them. You know, sending emails every week. To- yeah. <laughs> like, hey, did you see what I was up to this week? I'm pretty cool. Want to <laughs> hang out? You know, like nobody does that. Nobody does that. Yet in business, we feel like it's totally okay to do that. And. And, it, you know, I think the whole social media aspect kind of gives us this opportunity to not necessarily market to people, but just, just to share in a very kind of not looking to get anything back, which is, you know, you can critique in some ways, but I think that's incredibly powerful, just putting yourself out there and saying, hey, this is who I am. Anyone want to hang out? And so that idea of marketing rather than storytelling or storytelling rather than marketing is... Is a, is a powerful one. I think you do, I mean, the whole book details, Craig, but um, we see it time and time again in, in just about every situation. We're trying to stop people from marketing and just start being relationship, building relationships and being real. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I've heard a couple of interesting um, uh, anecdotes recently of CEOs of growing companies that still take time out to answer the phones at, in customer service. And I think that's incredibly interesting and important because it's so easy to lose sight of who your customer is and actually talk to them and have that relationship with them. Um, and I, it, it, we used to, I mean, I remember the days of answering the phones in the early days. It's amazing who will call into an underwear company and ask questions. Um, but the opportunity to actually talk to customers and develop relationships was so insightful and on the inside of the company made us so excited. We would get off the phone and be like, oh my gosh, guess who I just talked to and guess what they just told me. Like that was really where we were gaining some interesting insights about who our most interested customers were. But I don't think a lot of people take that time to really spend with the customer. Instead, they're like, well, let's send another 25% off email and see if we can get more people in the door. That's super, like, that's super interesting. And where my head goes with that is the current political environment and people campaigning, right? They're trying to build relationships. So they're out there and they're public and they're doing town halls and then they become president and they're like, later, I'm just going to go do my thing. And then someone like Obama actually starts doing town halls and everyone kind of chastises him for 
campaigning and not being a president. And, and maybe it was, maybe it was theater, but in the same <laughs> way that CEO hopping on the phone and, and getting back into the idea of creating relationships is, a, is so powerful. And we see in every company we go into, we see an incredible amount of knowledge at the customer service level and at the people who are you know, in the trenches interacting with consumers because they're actually building relationships. Yeah, I love talking to the customer service team at Pact. It was I would just go over and be like, "Hey, what's going on? What who's who called in today?" And they were like, "Well, you guess well, our friend called back and <laughs> that kooky person came back again." Yeah, and oh, we keep getting these calls about you know such and such. Like, okay, right? And like that's okay. That's a problem then, right? And like, oh yeah, it's a problem. Um, <laughs> so, but you find out about stuff from the front lines, which yeah, I think it's just so incredibly valuable. Did you find uh, that um, there was a curiosity about you guys from from being on the phones? Because I've had this experience many, many, many times where the customer is a little bit shy about asking this question, but they're dying to know what's really going on behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. We used to get <laughs> people would say, like, um, they would call in, customers would call in and ask, asking them we would always be really friendly about oh you know where are you oh okay what's your people inevitably said like oh what's your role or what do you do at pact or something and i remember jason always used to say i'm the ceo and people would be like oh my god <laughs> i'm talking to the ceo because i think they i think sometimes customers picture you know me sitting in like the 10th floor of like a building the size of gaps headquarters um there's no necessarily yeah. understanding of the fact that it was like three of us in a tiny little office over a sandwich shop in Berkeley. Um, I have a story about that. When I, uh, my wife and I started our theater production company, we were actually the only people to answer the phones. And there was a moment when we had our first baby. And so we were juggling the baby and the phones. And we were doing everything possible not to let anybody know that we were just two people <laughs> sitting, <laughs> answering the phones ourselves with a baby in our lap. And, uh, you know, how unprofessional is that? And every time that the baby would squeak or the customer would somehow find out that that really was the scene that was going on, um, we actually would create a lifelong customer, mm -hmm. like instantaneously on the spot, because we were human and and people just all of a sudden shifted from being in this buying and selling relationship into being in a human, like a compassionate, empathetic relationship. And they thought, oh, that's so cool that you guys are, you know, sat connected to your little kid that you're, you're trying to juggle and figure out how to do this without just putting your child in daycare or something. And we would get in these long conversations with people and then we'd sell them a ticket and they'd come to our show and it would be it would be all good and it was a very bizarre experience and i think this veil of of professionalism is frustrating for customers i think they want to know who's behind the scene and who's making the stuff and why are they doing it and that's what that's what they want to connect with i think they want it really authentically though i think big huge corporations are like now there's like a scripted thing Right. Where it's like, tell them your name because that makes people feel more comfortable when you call into Comcast or AT&T and 
You it's, get your, your 10th email of the week that says, hello, Craig. I know. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that's the thing that's just like, really? Like, are you, who is sitting in the room saying, this is really going to make people feel comfortable when we do, hello, insert customer name here, is just the inauthenticity that is so blatant in that has the sort of opposite reaction of the intended, right? I'm like, oh, I'm just like this number in a database that they pulled my name yeah. from. I had, a, I had a client uh, once that had a um, really, really terrible return process and it took forever and they just didn't have the logistics and the systems in place and it was a mess. And customers though did not, um, actually they gained customer satisfaction with customers only because they were completely transparent about it and they the people on the phones were actually expressing the frustrations they were having with it. And the customers became, again, really forgiving and compassionate and empathetic to that circumstance. And that was actually something that was a highlight of the, of the, the loyalty between that brand and, and those customers because they felt like these are good people trying to do the right thing. They're just crippled by certain logistics and that's okay i'm not in that big of a hurry and i can wait and i know that they're trying and yeah that was better than a perfect system well we uh, one of my favorite experiences was when we um when we launched you know it's really hard to have a full range of sizes and when we launched with leggings we did just small medium and large um well we got an email from a woman who was apoplectic about the fact that we didn't sell extra large or double extra large leggings. And it was, uh, there was some words in there um, to us that I won't repeat now. Um, and we were like, oh, wow. So it, we actually were sent an email back saying, oh, we're sorry, we're a really small company. You know, we are just starting this category and testing it. But actually we have um, the intention of adding more sizes. Um, we just haven't developed them yet. Um, would you actually be a, a, a fit tester for us on the new sizes? And then she called and she said, are you kidding me? You want me to be, to test your products for you? was like, yes, I will so do that. And she went from so angry at us to what I'm sure was, now she's like an official product tester for a company. And it just changed the entire relationship entirely because we just reached out to her and, and, and talked to her about, you know, what we were doing and what our challenges were and we want you to help. Yeah, people, people want to feel a part of it. They want to feel like they're helping to build the company. For yeah. sure. And, and they do. And it's amazing. I was always amazed at how much people felt that way when they, we didn't think they were involved at all. And they, how they felt that each purchase was, was exactly that. Like, I'm supporting this company. I'm helping them to grow. And every success the company had felt like it was, they were a part of that success. And I think that's what goes back to that relationship. That's a real relationship with someone. It's like having a good friend who, achieve something and you feel a part of it and you feel adulation for them. Which I think is why it's so expectations become so high from customers. And then it's interesting to see how customers as a company grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And they start to default, um, sort of not live up to those expectations. 
um, that's really where it starts to fall apart. Um, you know, Craig and I have had conversations about our ex recent experiences at a certain grocery store. Which... <laughs> I'm sure remain nameless. <laughs> you can call, you can name them. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> um, but if you go into the juice bar and get a freshly made juice, none of the fruit is, or vegetables are organic there. And it's or like, fresh. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I that's why I came here. And so the, the, what was brought in at the, what brought you in at the very beginning and made you believe so hard and, and, and be a cheerleader for has been taken away from you. You feel really like offended. Yeah. So with all, with all these learnings, let's dive into what you're, what you have coming up, what you're working on now. Yeah. Can... So this I'm ridiculously excited about. Um, so hey Jeff, can I let me interrupt because right before you dive into that, the highlight as you dive into this is uh, <laughs> is very much about participation. I think what's really fascinating about this so far, this conversation, is customers want to participate. They want to be involved in things they believe in, and they want to be involved in entities that are bigger than them so they can have an impact. And and what you're doing right now just is entirely delves exactly into that. So I think it's super fascinating. Yeah, so, well, the company is called The Renewal Workshop, and uh, what we do is we work directly with the biggest brands in the world, um, mostly starting in the outdoor industry, but we source directly from them all of the product that they deem is unsellable. So that's the stuff that's been returned, it's damaged, defective, warranty, overproduced, just the stuff that they could never sell or they get back that piles up in their warehouses. We take all of that product from them so that it doesn't go to landfill or incineration or some other form of getting rid of it. We save it, we divert it, we take it into a facility um, outside Portland, Oregon, and we sort it, we clean it, and we repair it, and we give that product new life. And then we either sell it back to the brand or we sell it out to um, the consumer. And it's pretty amazing um, what we stumbled upon um, with each brand. It's, it's shocking how much value is left in product. Um, things are, are being thrown away or not sold because they have broken zippers or stains or tears. Um, and these are things that can be fixed. And we have the ability and technology to clean products and, and reapply the water-resistant coating and, and get it back out to customers. It, it's When one person is done with it, it can be fixed and cleaned up and sent on to the next customer who, who wants to take it on a new adventure. Um, so this, this is like a whole new way of thinking about um, waste in the apparel industry and what waste means. And so you're essentially intercepting, you know, ideally, in the ideal state, everything and putting it back into circulation in some form, even raw material. Yeah, anything. Basically, it's funny because uh, when we've talked to brands, they, will you take this too? Well, yes, <laughs> we will take it all. We, you know, it's kind of, we, we, we're, we're like, we don't really know what we're going to do yet with some of that stuff. But I can tell you that what we'll do with it is going to be better than sending it to landfill or incinerating it or 
in many cases, sending it overseas. Um, our, our intention is to disrupt the linear economy in the apparel industry and start to focus on uh, or change the paradigm to be about circular economy. Um, and we just, uh, yeah, we want to interrupt the, uh, the idea of waste, redefine what the idea of waste is here. It's amazing. It's just so cool. And, and so how, share with us a little bit about your approach going into this one, especially from that uh, looking at the customer and customer acquisition and growing those relationships and what your view is on this second time around having gone through everything you went through with PACT. Yeah, I think that what we know now is that spending time up front understanding who our customer is is really going to be the most important piece here and what they expect from us. Part of um, our intention here is to focus on the renewal of this product, which is what we call this process. We're creating this new consumer product category called renewed apparel, um, or in the case of tents or sleeping bags, renewed gear. Um, understanding who wants that and what motivates them and why they would come back uh, over and over again is going to be the piece where we really um, focus our attention. Um, our intention is to be really transparent with the customer on what's happening to the product. This is a new, a whole new thing that no one's ever done before. And that is going to take time to explain to customers and to get them interested and excited and understanding enough to share. So we have to be patient and understand where they are in the customer development process and give them the tools to talk about that um, as they move through this process and through their understanding and through their desire to be involved in the brand. We certainly will not just be trying to get as many prospective people into the brand as possible by sending out emails with 25% off. It's, it's going to be far more intentioned as we, as we build our, our customer base. And is this what has led you to dive into the Linda problem? Yes. yes. <laughs> this segue finally into the Linda problem. You really want to talk way. about the Linda problem. <laughs> so Craig, why don't you give a quick overview of, of what the Linda problem is, and then maybe we can start to apply it to the, to the uh, renewal workshop yeah, I'll situation. Yeah, I'll do my best to explain something that is actually incredibly complicated, but... Um, this is, uh, this is work that ultimately led to the uh, award of a Nobel Prize for uh, two fellows named Kahneman and Tursky. They write about this concept in a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And the place that it shows up in the work that we do and the information that we're sort of uh, immersed in is how it is that people make decisions. And there's essentially two systems at work in our brains and one of them is very intuitively based and it's driven by the cognitive processes that we 
grow to shape our worldview. So as I grow up, my family behaves in a certain way. I get exposed to certain political beliefs and certain religious beliefs and cultural beliefs and and um, different prejudices along the way, regardless of, you know, how, how good of a human being you are, you're going to be judging things based on these filters. And these are very, very front of mind intuitive things. And it's a very active mental process, um, according to uh, the science. And there's another system that's operating that is more data driven and more logical but that system is very relaxed. And in the words of Kahneman and Tursky, it's a lazy um, uh, mechanism with us. And the superactive system one that is much more about our worldview and our, our first impression type of decision making uh, overrides system two. And uh, so oftentimes what happens with marketers is that opinion starts to drive how it is that they start to relate to customers. And uh, customers are actually also making these decisions this way. And so the presentation of information about a brand or a product or, uh, or a, a process of engaging a customer, it's this little dance actually between the brand itself and how well it's thinking about its, its own presentation of its own hierarchy of importance to the consumer and then the consumer's perception of that brand and what's coloring that and so there what happens in between is actually a very very um, fuzzy reality uh, between the two and what we found in the work that we've done is that if you could be much more um, rational on the brand marketing side and be really really clear and try and understand what your customer is thinking about and how they're thinking and how they're interpreting information, you can be much more clear about those communications that matter the most. And so it's the Linda problem has led us actually to understand that what we really want to do is understand how that customer operates and how they're making their decisions and what are the triggers for them um, that cause them to uh, understand something or not understand something or to see something or to not see something. Um, rather than both parties just operating off of a very intuitive gut feel of what's right and what's wrong, the brand can actually, uh, if they listen to their customer and talk to their customer and learn about their customer and how their customer thinks, they can actually prioritize and create hierarchy in the way the information gets transferred to them so that the customer has a better time at making the decisions that are going to cause them to actually form a relationship over time. So that was a maybe a... A little bit of a lengthy um, description of the Linda problem, but um, it also crops up in exactly what we're talking about. Where if I send more emails, send more emails, send more emails, I'm I'm optimizing to a tool rather than looking at the long-term effect of of what that is doing to develop the long-term relationship with the customer. My um, one of my favorite quotes in your book, I have starred and I want to get it um, printed out. It says, the mistake to avoid is believing that your most avid buyer, your most profitable customer defines your brand. They don't. They follow your brand because of what you stand for. They follow your core users because of what they stand for as well. And I think that for me is like, should be written in giant 
(laughs) Blinking lights in every marketing department across the nation. Yeah. You're paid to be here today, right? (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say you were going to get a tattoo. I think this is where we have to dive into a Patagonia example, Craig. We can't go a show without one, but um, <laughs> that whole concept that the most hardcore, passionate Patagonia customer buys very, very little from them annually, right? Yeah, they they can't afford to, right? Um, and and yet they they are completely committed to the relationship um, with the brand, and and they they've come to understand it and so it's not a it's not a superficial thing it's driven by a very very deep understanding of the company and that's then uh why they actually are willing to save their pennies and and make a purchase that probably fits outside of what their economic um or their demographic uh group would you know what most marketers would look at and say you know they can't they're not part of our they're not part of our demographic because they don't fit into it for all these different reasons and actually um the the exact opposite is true yeah this is the this is the linda problem uh fully manifested when when it you know if you get past that startup moment where you're being driven by you know just trying to make your payroll et cetera, et cetera. but if you're in a longer term environment and you start to see some growth uh the where the money resides if you look at it as a concentric circle you've got this founding principle at the center that is something that brings something new to the world and then there's a core group of customers that that get attracted to that that are really really truly um exactly on board with the exact same thing and those are the the early adopters and then you kind of imagine concentric circles out that become uh, in patagonia's case the core customers were the the dirt bags the people that were really out in the wild and doing all kinds of crazy outdoor things and they were living entirely around the passion of that experience and then the next concentric circle out was probably the weekend warrior that was still participating, but not at the level of uh, intensity that the those core people were. And then on the the next concentric circle out, um, getting bigger and bigger and bigger is actually the people that look at that and are attracted to it, but they don't actually truly participate in it in those activities, and they really, really aren't necessarily bought entirely into everything, but they're 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 superficially attracted to it and they're actually buying for some of the right reasons but they are not living the life or they're not necessarily fully committed to that that set of values and yet there's a lot of money out there and in the Patagonia parlance we used to call those folks the the dog walkers um, which are the people that are you know, maybe living in New York and they put on a Patagonia jacket and they go outside and walk their dog and come back in and take the Patagonia jacket off. They're they're bought into the brand to a certain extent, but what they're really following are those people at the center of those concentric circles, the core customers and the core founding principle is what they're attracted to. But if you start to merchandise to those people, they have a very different lifestyle and they're buying for very different um, activities and and general reasons. And brands that start to look at where the money is, um, 
then they start to lose their core audience because they're no longer providing that um, product from that exact point of view. They're either not doing it from a technical standpoint or they're not doing it from a value standpoint. So if packed underwear moved away from organic cotton, well, that would be a, 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 a slight to the principles, I guess. And that audience would move away. And then those people that were just maybe attracted to the style of it, and they wouldn't have that early adopter to follow. And Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, articulation of all this, where you've got the early adopters and late adopters, and then the followers, and then the super late followers and all that, this is the exact same mechanism when you take away that core audience and the, the people out on the fringe don't have anybody to follow, and then they start stop buying as well. So what you thought was the right thing to do was to market to that outside group because there was a lot of money there is actually the entirely wrong thing to do. You want to keep servicing that core principle uh, in an authentic way, and that will maintain your core audience, and then those, those concentric circles of, of customers that are following are going to keep following. There's I think that's the most valuable insight that I just, it seems simple, but it seems, and it seems, but I think it's just incredibly difficult for brands to do because they're so interested as companies to get more and more money. The math, the math tells you to do the counter. Right. And that's where, that's where we have the Linda problem, where our brains look at the math kind of uh, intuitively, and we don't really look at why the math is happening the way it's really happening. There's not a there's not a rational explanation of why that large audience is buying from it. I actually talked to a, a prospective client yesterday um, that was had grown to a certain size, and they've done a really really good job of being very very true to that authentic core purpose that they started the company around. But they've kind of reached a ceiling. They feel like they really don't have the mechanism to scale the company beyond where it is today. And so the debate inside is actually, well, what other, what other people can we go to? Should we lower our quality and lower our price? They're very high premium uh, end, of, end of the spectrum product brand. And so that's the debate. You know, can we reach a larger audience if we make a lower price, a little bit lower quality? And that's not what they were built on. They were built on the very, very highest quality, the very, very most kind of handcrafted uh, type of approach to their product. And that's, you know, they're right in the midst of starting to commit uh, that same mistake. And if they actually just hunker down and become more clear about what it is that, that's driving them in the first place, um, but articulate that progression or, or communicate uh, the, the, the set of values that are sitting at the, at the center in a more clear way um, and leverage that existing core audience, I think they ultimately can scale. But um, you know, all that remains to be seen, exactly what the mechanisms for all that is. But if they move away from that core audience, then the whole thing's going to implode. So one thing I think that's interesting is that like brands, this this happens to all kinds of brands, right? They feel like they like they start at a premium level of product, and then they're like, okay, that's great, but that's a really small audience. So how do we leverage what we have built from a premium standpoint and sell to the masses? So mm -hmm. the old saying of sell to the masses, live with the classes. Sell the classes, live with the masses. Um, 
<laughs> I think. And so you see some, uh, some companies develop sub brands. Um, and do you, how, what do you, how do you feel about, about sub brands? Is that, does that um, compensate for or avoid the Linda problem by, by giving people just a hint of the original brand without damaging the original brand? No, I think the interesting thing about all this is that um, I think one of the things that, again, the Patagonia example is, is an easy one to talk about, but it, it's not necessarily about making a certain type of product for a certain type of core customer. It's actually applying the principles across whatever the product is. And Patagonia has been successful at expanding into other product categories that are maybe not you know, you're not going to climb Everest in a cashmere sweater, but um, I, there's a lot of people that are wearing Patagonia cashmere sweaters, and the essence of that ca that cashmere sweater is is Patagonia. Uh, when Patagonia actually first started making that product category, um, they didn't do it in a Patagonia way, and customers sent them notes and called them on the phone and said, "Hey, you know, you guys, this doesn't seem this doesn't seem like you guys," and and the response back from Yvonne Chouinard actually was, yeah, you're right. Let's do this correctly. So they sourced the material the way they, they typically do and went through that due diligence. And they designed it with from the design principles perspective. Like, why is this thing going to be valuable? Why is somebody going to wear it? Is it going to last a long time? Is it designed in a way that it's not going to become obsolete in, in two or three years? And can we really build it from the from the the design principles that are also applied to technical product? And when that happened, then all of a sudden it became a viable product. And it's a casual product. It's still top end, but there are a lot of people that, that are affording it, and they're affording it for the right reason. Maybe I'm not in the demographic that can just you know spend $300 on, on a product like that. But if I understand that it's going to be in my closet for a very long time, and I'm going to wear it for two decades, and it's classically styled, it's not going to... Uh, fall apart because it's manufactured well, um, then all of a sudden it becomes maybe it's not as expensive as I thought it was. If I buy a t-shirt from Ibex uh, that costs $60 versus three t-shirts from American Apparel, I'm probably better off buying a t-shirt from Ibex. And so my money went just as far, even though the price point is high. And so it's more about the expression of those principles that are driving the manifestation of the product, then it is about repositioning the product for a certain audience and looking out at the marketplace and saying, well, how can I sell this uh, thing over here to this group over here? Well, I have to dumb it down. I have to turn it into something else. And then it's not really what it was in the first place anyhow. And so now you're, now you're getting really confused yourself and you don't know who you are and you don't know who your audience is. And then it all sort of just, starts to dissolve yeah i was in the middle of an interesting conversation of of trying to reach a, a an audience and and to reach that audience they had to hit a price point and reaching that audience was very much a part of the brand's core values and so they're they're trying to reconcile how do we get there and where they ended up through this conversation was realizing that they can try to drive down the price and as long as it doesn't sacrifice any of the other principles, it's okay to do. And when doing that, they found that they could only get the price so low. And that's just where it would have to be for now. And maybe new technologies, new design 
whatever it might be, could help them to get lower at a later point. But they couldn't compromise. They couldn't put price over those other values. And I think that's the key there, that is, if it's servicing their purpose and they're keep staying true to their values, then, yeah, shoot for a lower price and access a bigger when market. There's, but, when there's something else going on, there the price is very rarely very high in customers' hierarchy of, of spending. When it's an absolute commodity, then, yeah, that's when price starts to win. But when there's any other sort of differentiation to it, um, again, we go back to the, the cognitive process. Like, what is it that's filtering um, that customer's point of view? And and understanding that price is, price is hardly ever a real driver to it. There are so many other uh, attributes to a purchase decision that, um, that need to be understood before that pricing decision is really made. But what about looking at like walking when you walk through a Walmart? Is that not a whole customer base that is making decisions based just on price? Yeah, I, I think in a, in a lot of ways it is, and that's because everything has been driven to the lowest common denominator across the board of all those discerning attributes of the product. So it's, it's, the, it's the lowest common denominator of attributes, all, all put together um, across categories, and, and so the only remaining um, point of of distinction is price and that's what you're left with but as soon as you change one attribute of any of those products you will attract people buying it for a different reason other than price it's interesting what's happening with Walmart and some of the other uh, brands that are in department stores that are focused solely on price and the challenges that they're having right now well, and, I think one I'd of the most interesting I was going to say is I think that JCPenney has been one of the most interesting studies in perhaps, I guess you could call it a Linda problem in some way. Um, you know, they re tried to reinvent themselves, um, <laughs> but failed horribly in doing so because it seemed to me like they had no clue who their core customer was. They just thought that if they appleified their shopping experience and made it slick and modern and fancy and brought in new brands that they would attract a totally different set of people to the store. Well, I think, I think, yeah, they got out JC pennied, you know, by all the other ones, Target right. <laughs> and, and Walmart and everybody else took their game away from them. And then what were they left with? Now they have to go reinvent themselves to a different audience, and that's not an audience that could be attracted to it because the definition of JCPenney was one thing, and how are you going to change that in people's minds? They just got beat right. at their own game. Yeah. It seems like they just lost sight of who their customer was and what their customer wanted now, today, yeah. in 2015. Yeah, it's a great example that you can't just make it up. Right. Like right. You can't just you just can't make it up on a spreadsheet and in, or in a in a in a deck somewhere of this is who we're going to be. It needs it actually needs to be who who you are is who you're going to be. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's my point. J.C. Penney's is J.C. Penney's. They're they were the Walmarts and Costco's and Targets of 
the days before all those brands really really emerged and got any traction they were they were the you know the most efficient spend on the planet and when a better i mean really in certain terms there's a whole nother model here but the the idea of convenience and promotion is where they resided and then they tried to shift to become something completely different and that was that's not who they are it's not what got them to the state of where they were in the first place so when that competition moved in and did better at what they were doing than what they had done for so very long that was the end of their battles sort of you know redefining the brand would have to redefine it so immensely i'm not sure if that's if that's necessarily possible and then I go to the opposite spectrum to a department store that's doing something that continues to be relevant, which I think is Nordstrom, who knows what they're all about, customer service. Um, and then they, but then they continue to offer their customers new things that are technology appropriate as their customer evolves. Um, they've purchased some interesting brands like Trunk Club. They've, um, to make themselves more relevant to their customer, um, all in the name, continuing to be in the name of what they stand for, which is amazing customer service. Yeah, um, there you go. To, just to watch them can be smart about how they how they evolve with the times. Yeah, all the all the logistics and and pieces and parts and and ways of distribution, et cetera, they're all changing all around them, but they're staying very true to the the basic driver of of their business and they remain relevant because of it and they remain connected to that customer it's amazing how many brands are really built on that customer service piece how critical that is and how often overlooked that is that's yeah i think built. that's the piece that grew zappos right i mean you had it was all about customer service and you see it when you go to the zappos headquarters it's it, it, that whole idea of friendly honest authentic customer service fills the entire place and it's their it's their entire culture the you have a great, yeah craig you have a great statistic somewhere I, I always see that 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 speaks to that being the next battleground that that the the major companies the major brands the ceos are looking at customer service and service design that that is that is the future of of brand yeah i think it's interesting with jeff's uh new endeavor because it really is uh you know everybody talks about customer service and it's pretty obvious give good customer service and be there and be present and do whatever you can and bend over backwards and on and on and on but actually building that into the architecture of the organization and being a and designing it that way, I think that's where that's where these these companies that become famous for customer service. So there's actually, I think there's a a piece in my book about the parking spot um, that they're just actually engineered to provide service that's completely appropriate for the for the thing that they're for their that they're doing. You know, the mechanisms are all built in enterprise. Rent a car was that way, and I think the parking spots that way, Zappos is that way, and 
but it takes a it, it that's almost like a principle of the organization to say that we're going to be providing these things in these ways and and uh, and those become functional they're not just an attitude and they're not just a kind of lip service they're actually very functional mechanistic pieces within the organization that have to be deliberately designed into the service environment and um, if you're not if you're not designing it in then it's not just going to magically happen because you have nice people on the front lines or or whatever it actually has to be built in and a lot of companies build it into their into their rewards programs for their employees and promotion policies and and all sorts of things so it's uh it's logistics and hr and but it comes from the core place in the organization yeah i think people think that good customer service is just about being more friendly <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I think it fails so often is because it's everybody knows good customer service is key, but the steps taken to actually engineer that is a very deliberate thing and not easy. I'll tell you somebody who's trying so desperately hard is United Airlines to I mean their campaign is Basically, giant billboards that say, we're friendly, really honestly, trust us, we're friendly. We're really trying to be friendly. And it's, I think that the thing they've missed is like, that's not, if that's not, you're missing the point. That, it, the you actually have to be friendly. <laughs> well, there's that, but maybe just being friendly can make it, consumers want. Yeah, they're competing on, on convenience and, and usability. And if they're going to provide good customer service, they need to make a usable experience, something that works from start to finish. The entirety of the experience of travel has to be made as efficient as possible and as easy as, as and user-friendly as possible. All of a sudden, they'll become famous for customer service if they did that. Which, you know, is why Southwest is much more famous for the customer service, because the process is so much easier and so much yeah. It's forgiven. designed. It's designed, designed to help yep. customers through the experience of travel. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, United feels like it's designed to impede consumers' <laughs> experience of travel. Well, there we go. We covered some serious ground there. We did. Um, and thank you very much for having me on. It's always fun and interesting to talk about um, all this kind of stuff because I come away with so many more insights um, for for the development of, of my own business. Um, so stay tuned. And uh, I promise not to make a Linda problem. <laughs> Is there anything you can plug right now? There's no, right? There's, there, there's nothing up yet. We're, you're still in early, early development or? We're, we're still in early development. We're still in pilot with our brands. Um, we don't even have a website yet. So, um, but the name is. Super the sneak peek. Yes, this is the sneak, sneak peek. The name is the Renewal Workshop and we'll be coming soon to you. Yeah. Maybe we'll have the whole crew on when, when there's something a little more built. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Yes, thank you, Jeff.